Hi and welcome to the show. This is episode 52 of Roy's Rocket Radio, recorded on Friday the 26th of September 2014, and the time is 8.31 in the evening. So, welcome again to the show, and it's a special show today, uh, because it's my birthday. So, happy birthday, me. And, of course, a great big hi to all the listeners out there. Have a great day, my fellow people of Earth. And let's start with some news. So, I'm going to whiz through the news so we can get right on to the main subjects of the evening, which is all the nerdy goodness I'm going to talk about. So, just a few bits of news, some podcast techie details. Now, I've downloaded the latest drivers for Microsoft LifeCam HD 5000 webcam, so I hope the sound will be a lot better today. I'm actually play, playing some trailers later on from a separate netbook sitting uh, right on the same desk as the main Mac Mini that I use, but run running Windows. And uh, yada yada, I'll stop now. So, why the delay in the podcast? Uh, yeah, I missed a week. Uh, and the delay was due to the Logies. I had a bad dose of the Logies, and I was really sick, sick as a dog actually. Uh, had a cold, and then a stomach upset, and also at the same time I managed to knacker myself out, fixing up the home and gardening, and holes. Uh, well, that was part of fixing up the home. There are holes in the outside wall everywhere. Holes, holes, holes. I spent one whole day uh, filling in holes. Really annoying, really tiring, really messy work. You know, one day I'd just like to move somewhere perfect where I don't have to fix anything. Uh, And the last topic of the news, well, almost the last topic, uh, increasing podcast downloads. Now, I've mentioned this before. And uh, I was so happy for a few weeks, thinking, "Wow, I must be. This must be a really quality podcast because so many people are downloading it." But then, of course, there is a reason that I'm getting more downloads, and it's nothing to do with quality. It's the fact that I've recently syndicated the podcast just about everywhere, uh, and I report that you know I mentioned this frequently on Twitter and uh, in the blog, and it didn't occur to me that that was the reason for the increased podcast. So, if you're not getting enough listeners, that's my recommendation. Try and syndicate your podcasters in as many places as possible, starting with iTunes. And uh, if you look around on the internet, if you just Google a podcast syndication, you'll find a whole host of places that are willing to uh, distribute your podcast. You'll probably have to know a bit about XML, but you'll be fine. Okay. And the last bit of news is... It's my birthday! Okay, I already mentioned that. The other thing is that, as well as being my birthday, I decided to do a really long podcast to uh, make up for all the other stuff that I've missed over the last week. And... You know, there's something else I wanted to tell you. I've, I've written it. God, goodness knows why I've written it down here. But there is a prime bo- bottle of Mauritian rum um, about 20 feet away from me. Um, and I'm trying, really trying quite hard not to go and op- crack that open. Uh, wait till I have some guests. But more importantly, welcome to the show. 
and we'll start off as we usually do with TV and we're continuing our Doctor Who marathon you'll be glad to know and we're with the first Doctor Series 3 uh, Adventure 5 The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve this is a four-parter first broadcast from the 5th of February 1966 to the 26th of February 1966, obviously. Uh, the writers are John Lacarotti and Donald Tosh. The director, Paddy Russell. Producer, John Wiles. Cast, William Hartnell as the Doctor, Peter Purvis as Stephen Taylor and Jackie Lane who we'll talk about later, as Dodo Chaplet. And they're the companions, of course, of the Doctor. So we'll start with the synopsis. Now, actually, I didn't mention last time in the Doctor Who, our continuing Doctor Who marathon, where we're going from the first episode ever to the, the current series. Uh, and I didn't mention last time, uh, because I was still in the process of watching the last adventure, which was the Daleks' master plan. Uh, yeah, when I did the last podcast that was talking about that particular adventure, I hadn't actually finished watching it. And the reason I'm mentioning this now is that one of the companions of the Doctor was a very, very short-lived companion, and that was Sara Kingdom. She actually died in the same adventure, so she's not around anymore. Uh, and the manner in which she died was quite horrible. Now, if you can remember back to a film called Altered States in 1980, uh, Ken Russell's Altered States, uh, there's a scene during the film, um, and I'm probably giving it the, a lot of the film away, but all I'm saying is Lizard Woman slash Sphinx scene. Now, if you know what I'm talking about, uh, well, translate that into um, something that isn't a dream sequence, but it's actually reality. So, all, what you can take away from this is that it really, really isn't that safe traveling with the Doctor. And if you do travel with him, always listen to what that annoying annoying Gallifreyan says because it might just save your life even if you don't want to listen okay got it right um, back to this adventure now this by the way is um, a reconstruction it's one of those lost adventure lost serials uh, where there is nothing left and they've had to patch things together uh, by gluing uh, scene, uh, set photographs and some text with the, uh, and then overlaying the soundtrack. Um, so, okay. In this adventure, we're back in France, uh, before the revolution this time, because if you remember back to a previous, um, adventure of the Doctor, I can't remember which one, but they were back, that they were in revolutionary France. So this is before that period. Uh, in fact, we're in the 16th century, we're in, uh, and we're in Paris, um, and the Huguenots and the Roman Catholics are at each other's throats. 
the Huguenots, if you can't remember your history, were, um, well, they're basically Protestants. So yeah, this is a historical episode again. Um, something of a, well, it is completely a costume drama. Except for one thing, the Doctor is wearing a highly anachronistic costume he made, he had made in the early adventure in Revolutionary France. Um, but it kind of starts off with him wanting to go out and find a scientist called Preslin. I'm not sure if he's fictitious or, um, you know, he really existed, but he wants to go and find this scientist Preslin. Uh, and prod him in the direction of discovering, I believe, uh, germs, uh, I suppose bacteria. Um, not sure if it's uh, late enough to be viruses, but bacteria at least. Uh, now, when the Doctor goes off on his solo mission, he doesn't want Stephen along, he just wants to do his own thing, so Stephen ends up uh, in a pub, tavern, drinking with some Huguenots. Eventually, as they always do, things go pear-shaped, and the Huguenots are slaughtered. When paranoia that they may be plotting against the Catholics with the help of the Dutch sea-beggar Protestant rebels, gets going. This is the trouble with referring from notes. Uh, you'll, you'll write a sentence and it'll just stop abruptly, so if you're reading from them too closely, um, you'll get completely confused by your own notes. But yeah, what I was trying to say is um, uh, that the, the, the whole plot of this particular episode is a tension between the Huguenots and the Catholics in Paris, uh, the French government mainly made up by Catholics, um, who are getting paranoid that the Yukonos may want to take over, I'm assuming. My history isn't all that great, and I had to do a lot of wicking after the show. Um, and the Huguenots, in turn, are trying to make an alliance with the Sea Beggars, which are Dutch rebels, um, who are trying to regain Holland from Philip of Spain. But if we go off on that tangent, I'll be here all night giving you a history lecture where half of what I say will probably be wrong anyway, so we'll leave it for there. Uh, at the end of the... Uh, what really matters, though, is at the end of this episode... Oh, sorry, at the end of this adventure, uh, there's a big battle and the Huguenots get wiped out. The Doctor and Stephen end up back in the TARDIS, but... This time, Stephen is completely appalled by the Doctor's uh, policy of non-interference and swears to leave him at their next stop. Um, it is a bit odd that the Doctor um, doesn't want to interfere, but he does want to interfere with Preslin uh, discovering germs. So I don't know if that's a, some error in the script or the Doctor's got some uh, plan up his sleeve. Uh, my suspicion is that it's just an inconsistency with the writing <laughs> that they probably glossed over really quickly, you know, uh, later on. Uh, well, anyway, the Doctor and Stephen leave. Uh, 
16th century France, and they arrive in, 19, in the 1960s on Wimbledon Common, uh, home of the Wombles. You know what, we could have a podcast just about the Wombles, but I, I won't mention that now. I'm just praying that everyone listening is actually old enough to remember who the Wombles are. Do you know, I had one of the Wombles. I had a Womble soft cuddly toy. I'm trying to remember which Womble I had. It was either Orinoco or Tobamori. I'm going with Tobamori, I think. No, it was Orinoco. I don't know. Anyway, back to Wimbledon Common. So the TARDIS lands on Wimbledon Common. Steve imme- Stephen immediately leaves, and the Doctor sadly reflects on being alone. Um, and he, he he does what he usually a lot of uh, what he does, um, or what the writers do with William Hartnell. They'll give him a soliloquy, and this is quite a moving one. He reflects on being alone, how all uh, how Susan has left him, how how everyone has left him. Um, and he he obviously needs the companions, but um, as he's uh, going getting all self piteous and and everything, um, uh, a girl wanders into the TARDIS. Uh, she's looking for help for an accident she apparently witnessed, and she says her name is Dodo Chaplet, uh, and Dodo short for Dorothy, I think, or Dorothea. I think it's... Uh, anyway, Dodo Chaplet. Stephen chases after her, re-enters the TARDIS. Doesn't see Dodo, but warns the Doctor to take off immediately to avoid the police. When the Doctor does this, Stephen notices for the first time Dodo and tells her in something of a panic concerned panic that she is now lost in time and space. Uh, he explains that, that, you know, you could end up anywhere because the TARDIS is, well, I don't think he goes to full explanation, uh, but the main thing that we know and the, the Doctor knows and Stephen knows is the TARDIS is a bit of a rust bucket and it's uh, malfunctioning, so you can't quite predict where you're going to end up. Uh, so he tells her that she's now lost along with them. The Doctor and Stephen then wonder whether Dodo Chaplet might be related to a young Huguenot girl called Anne Chaplet, who they met um, in France from the adventure they'd just been on. So that's uh, a synopsis, a very clumsy synopsis of this particular adventure. What's it called again? The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. And I've got to tell you, I, after a while I had to give up wicking stuff too much after watching this. It, one thing just led on to another. Huguenots led on to the Sea Beggars, led on to um, the Massacre in Paris. Um, it was just endless. I <laughs> could have ended up uh, doing a history degree. Um, so my view... Um, sorry about that. Still got a bit of a cold. 
Um, right, so my view of uh, this adventure is it's okay and interesting. Um, but it is very, very like a history lesson. Uh, actually, not like it. This is actually what it is. Um, I mean, uh, Sidney Newman, when he was uh, uh, coming up with the idea for Doctor Who, said that he wanted the show to be educational, and this one's, this particular adventure certainly is that. see what else did I think oh the other thing is uh, and now some not so good things um, I found it a little complicated to follow uh, much more so than the previous Doctor Who costume historical dramas uh, the problems are uh, that there are too many characters with long aristocratic names and the plot is way too convoluted. You know, if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you'll know that I'm more of a space aliens, uh, ray guns, Deja, Thoris. Okay, that's from another franchise, but you know what I mean. So, it is really with relief that we're zapping into uh, the year 10 million A.D., uh, next week with the adventure The Ark. So that was the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve from 1966, featuring the first Doctor William Hartnell. <coughs> oh dear, I really have got a cold. Uh, right, so next we have even more Doctor Who. So I just wanted to talk really briefly about uh, our latest Doctor Who that was on last Saturday. So uh, the Peter Capaldi Doctor Who. So this is Season 8, uh, Episode 5, entitled Time Heist. So in this one, Doctor Who goes all, all Ocean's Eleven slash Theseus and the Minotaur with this adventure where the... Doctor, Clara, and two specialists meet to rob a bank. The twist is that they can't remember why they're doing the job, as they've had their memories erased. So, altogether not bad, but I still think, overall, in this new series, that Listen is far and away the, the best episode so far. Oh, it's a little aside, and I've twittered about this, and I'm sure every other Doctor Who fan already knows this, but Coal Hill School, where Clara teaches, is the same school, uh, at least in name, if not location and set, as the Coal Hill School from the very first episode of Doctor Who way back in 1963. Uh, that's the same school where Barbara and Ian taught the Doctor's granddaughter, Susan Foreman, or tried to teach her, uh, because if you remember, she was astonishingly uh, ignorant in, in some aspects, but as far as science went, she was uh, far more um, advanced than any of the teachers. Wow, just thinking about that makes me feel nostalgic. Too much emotion shutting down, shutting down. Okay. Uh, right. Oh, I wonder how much of... You know what, now I'm thinking. 
I really want to wiki and find out where where Coal Hill School is supposed to be and whether it actually exists. Um, I'm guessing not, but um. Oh no, I'll just leave it for now. I've got to do the podcast. So yeah, I'm enjoying this uh, this new season of Doctor Who. Glad to see that the Doctor's back. Um, I'm starting to to get used to the accent. Um, can't see the logic in it unless he's somehow managed to uh, channel some Amy Pond. Which is what I read on, on someone else's blog out there. can't remember who, so again, I can't credit them. Uh, next. Okay, we're going to talk about um, a couple of upcoming uh, TV shows uh, now. So, first of all, Big Bang Theory 2014. Season 8 is just starting over the pond, but not sure when it's out here. Though I do see some websites claiming it will be back in November. There were some delays um, to series uh, to season eight, I believe. What was that season seven? Oh no, now I'm confused. But there were some delays um, over the last few months uh, because the agents of the cast were negotiating a pay rise. Uh, the main stars um, are getting something like a million dollars per episode. I'm not sure how I feel about that, whether, whether anyone in the world deserves that much, but um, then it's not just... I'm just thinking how much the producers of the show are making too, or, or the director. So, you know, if footballers can get paid... Uh, that much and sports people and pop stars and rock stars uh, why not actors uh, I've seen little clips of it and it does look pretty good so I'm sure you'll enjoy that when it starts again over here next Gotham so this is another series um, that just started over in the US a few days ago uh, we're getting, uh, Channel 5 are buying it apparently, and we're getting it sometime in October. Channel 5 seemed quite excited about it. I talked about this before, um, but just to recap, it's a prequel to Batman, and concerns the younger characters of Gotham, of the Gotham Underworld, who will feature uh, in Batman later on. So we have um, characters like the, peng the young Penguin, Catwoman, Riddler, uh, you know, etc. In general, it seems to revolve mainly around Jim Gordon, and it does look great. I've, I've got to say, I was a bit sceptical, but it does actually look great. It looks well acted, well written, has a nice gritty look about it. Um, like I said before, though, uh, I do hope it doesn't get too soapy. Um, but from what I've seen, it won't. Um, but please, no, not too much so soap. I certainly hope that it doesn't morph into something like Smallville. Uh, you know, like a kind of Smallville for Batman. Smallville was good in its way, but it seemed on the whole to diminish the importance of Superman uh, through over-familiarity with a character to the point that uh, there seemed to be no mystique left. Hopefully this won't happen. Uh, 
Oh yeah, interestingly, we have also we also get to see lesser known characters uh, play a part in this uh, series, uh, like for example Rene Montoya, who eventually succeeds Vic Sage as the Question. Over in Hub City, does she go back to Hub City? You know, I, I don't know what happens in the Question after Vic Sage. Uh, I have to look that up sometime. So yeah, Rene Montoya plays um, uh, a police officer, um, a detective, on the Major Crimes Unit, something like that, some kind of elite uh, part of the Gotham Police Department. And also look out for the young penguin. Um, what a great role that must be to play. Uh, though the actor Robin Taylor <laughs> does seem um, a little tall. I know he's an actor and he can pretend to be um, stumbly and shorter, but um, he seems to tower over the rest of the cast. But apart from his height, he does seem to be getting uh, his teeth right into the role. So well done. Oh yeah, and one other thing I wanted to mention. Um, this is something I, I looked up for myself mainly. Um, and if you already know this, I apologise for mentioning it now. But um, I was kind of curious. Um, so, this show, uh, when it, when the news of it coming out started to circulate, I, I was kind of struck by how similar an idea, at least, it was to... Ed Brubaker, uh, Greg Rucker, and Michael Lark et al.'s uh, Gotham Central uh, comic book series, which ran from 2003 to 2006. Um, but apparently it is not the same thing. Although I've also read that it might not be the same thing, but when the uh, show came out, when the TV, when this TV show came out, they did print out um, a special a souvenir copy of, I think, the first issue of, or maybe a trade, not sure, of Gotham Central. But in general, no, no, it, the two are not related. So that's Gotham 2014, coming sometime in October to the UK on Channel 5, which means that everyone can view it. Next Glue 2014. This is a new murder mystery. Uh, okay, so we're going vanilla for a moment, <laughs> so just bear with me. Um, straying away from the realms of um, sci-fi, fantasy and horror. So Glue, this is a new murder mystery drama on E4 about some youths living in a small village in the Berkshire countryside. I found it not bad actually, pretty good and pretty engaging too, but a tad agricultural for my taste. And by that I mean there's a bit too much nature roaring tooth and claw. Um, thing is, I'm not actually a vegetarian, but still, I think it's... Um, oh, it's just that there are there are parts of this where horrible things happens to animals like um uh, i don't want to <laughs> make this podcast any more grim than it needs to be but um there's a scene where a cow dies in childbirth uh, in uh, do you call that childbirth or calf birth 
well, anyway, a cow unfortunately dies in, in giving birth, and the calf has no mother, so I think, oh, they're going to do something nice. They're going to um, uh, feed up the calf with one of those little baby bottles, and it will be like uh, Born Free or something with the lion cubs, and no, it isn't, because they just break the calf's neck. Um, and then they skin it. <laughs> I, I saw that, and I thought... If anything's going to drive you into being a vegetarian, it's probably that scene right there. Um, so I said it's pretty engaging, but now I've got, I want to qualify that. I think it's, although it's a fairly average story so far, if you were to take, if you were to look at this just as a script, you would think, oh, okay, not bad. Um, but it, it's the filming that makes this special. Uh, the filming is so brilliant that I just like the look of the thing. Um, so I don't know who's responsible for the look, uh, the director or the camera, uh, cameraman, but, um, someone's doing something right on that show. Um, so all in all, pretty good. Um, and, uh, kudos to the, f uh, the great work of the filming crew. Um, and good all round, except for where horrible things happens to animals. Um, although, I, I, I should point out that this is faked for film. I don't think any of it's actually real. So, so no animals were harmed in the making of this, yeah, etc. So, that's uh, TV for this week. And now on to movies. Now, you know, I said earlier that this was going to be a long show, and I could actually say it's going to be a monster show, because this week we are going to look at the main three Godzilla movies. So that's Godzilla 1954, the original, the Hollywood remake from 1998 starring Matthew Broderick, and the latest one that's just been out, 2014, with Brian Cranston. So, just give me a moment, I'll have a sip. Of ginger ale. Actually, this looks like it's going to be a long talk, so I'm just going to have a break for a moment, but of course you won't notice this, because through the magic of technology, I'll just pause the podcast for a moment. And I'm back. Actually, I caught a view of the television just before I um, <laughs> came back. And uh, they've got that Barocca advert on, on TV. I love that advert. It's where you've got the, uh, I think, the free spaceman. They land on a planet. Um, these strange alien women um, uh, approach them in a sinister manner, and one, uh, one of them, I think the captain says, um, you know, look out, these, these aliens want to breed with us, and um, <laughs> one of the younger um, uh, crew members uh, thinks about this, turns around and then shoots both his crewmates, and then takes off his helmet and walks into the arms of the women, and that really cracks me up. <laughs> I love that advert. <laughs> I wonder who, who came up with that. Okay, um, and back to Godzilla. So we'll start off with the first Godzilla movie from 1954. Uh, this is the original. Uh, 
uh, obviously called Gojira, uh, G-O-J-I-R-A, although obviously in, um, <laughs> in, in Japanese characters that would be something completely different. Um, and this movie was made by the to produced by the Toho Corporation and directed by Toshiro Honda. So I'll just give you a brief rundown of the movie. Uh, something is attacking boats. And then it's terrorizing the countryside and finally the cities. And that thing, of course, is the terrible giant Godzilla. Unleashed from, presumably, under the seabed by nuclear tests being done at the time by the Americans. So that's a, a very brief um, summary of the, the story. Um, and in it, we, we really have a bit of everything. with er Everything to do with sci-fi. Every uh, major sci-fi trope you can find in this movie, or, or some of the major ones. Uh, we have the uh, mass destruction of a disaster movie, um, the giant monster, a mad scientist, and a love triangle involving the mad scientist, uh, a handsome hero, and a beautiful girl. We have cryptozoology mixed with folklore. We have quite a few things, in fact. Is it good? Well, it is low budget, and it is black and white. But I have to say, of all the Godzilla movies, it is the only one I actually uh, own. And, interestingly, I... And I mentioned this before, I try and collect movies, um, or, or bookmark... Uh, is that the right word? Bookmark? Earmark? Well, bookmark movies that my parents, who aren't really into sci-fi, might like to watch. And I'm pretty sure, looking at this movie, that th this is one of them they would enjoy. So if you're uh, on the lookout for movies, um, the people close to you who might not ordinarily like science fiction might enjoy, I think this is one of them. And that should really tell you something, because I'm not one of those people who always hark back to the good old days of old movies. Uh, but I genuinely think that this movie is still the best of the bunch. Let's see, what else can I talk about? Uh, oh yeah, the, um, the monster itself. Uh, apparently, uh, I think I read, I read this earlier today, um, the monster suit was actually made for a different production uh, entirely, and only in the last minute budget constraints meant that they used it for this movie, and I'm kind of glad they did, um, because, and this is probably due <coughs> also to the actor who was in the suit, who quite criminally, I, I don't know who the guy was, maybe I should have looked that up, but the guy wearing this uh, suit made for another production still managed 
manages to play the monster with a kind of noble pathos. It's difficult to describe how how good the acting is. Um, I could make comparisons to the faceless, behind-the-mask acting of Michael Fassbender in Frank. Uh, we played Frank, the fictional uh, singer guy Frank Sidebottom in 2014, or Hugo Weaving's sorry phenomenal performance behind the mask as V in V for Vendetta in 2005. But those are both human scale characters, um, and the guy in the suit was playing, you know, a towering monster, hundreds of feet high, who can destroy entire cities with his tail and f destructive um, atomic breath. So I, I must admit, I'm quite impressed by whoever that actor was. Um, the other thing you can get from the movie, and uh, I'm not sure if it will be relevant to later generations, but it, it depends. Um, Well, anyway, I'll talk about it, and then you can decide for yourself. You you definitely get a feeling of the post-Hiroshima and Nagasaki malaise um, from the movie, that the country seemed to be still suffering the trauma of those bombings. Um, and I also do get a f strong feeling of uh, preachiness against the dangers of science, um, as well as uh, even more preaching about uh, how scientists should behave. All these seem um, to be giant topics, uh, way outside the, the purview of uh, the usual science run-of-the-mill science fiction movie, um, especially one as low-budget um, as this. But it tackles it, it tackles many many difficult subjects so well um, and so interestingly. Hmm. So that was Godzilla, nineteen fifty four. All in all, definitely definitely worth a watch. It's not too long a movie either, so you won't get too bored. Um, the black and white seems to impart some kind of extra realism to the movie as well. Um, I believe there was a debate as to whether this movie was to be made in colour, but again, due to budgetary concerns, it was made in black and white, and a good thing that it was too. I think this would have looked false and toy-like um, in colour. So yeah, excellent movie. Now we go to Godzilla 1998, and this is really Godzilla meets Jurassic Park. Oh dear, I... Now, although I did like Matthew Broderick's uh, character as the um, nerdy scientist, and Jean Reno sadly looking for a, a, a decent croissant and a decent cup of coffee, is something that I can totally sympathise with. Uh, 
Though, actually, I want to digress for a moment. Talking about that coffee thing... The whole coffee thing about Jean Reno in this movie is he's going through New York and he can't find anywhere to make that will make him a decent cup of coffee. Actually, I've got to say, I completely refuse to believe that that would ever be the case. In fact, I couldn't get a decent cup of coffee in the middle of Paris. <laughs> That's actually happened to me. Um, one of the worst cups of coffee I've ever had in my entire life was given to me by a horrible, horrible waiter in Paris. I should have thrown the coffee at him. I didn't, and... Um, Next time I go to Paris, make sure my coffee's good. Um, but yeah, I, <laughs> I, I get the I, I get the conceit. It's, it's a popcorn movie, and they're trying to show that uh, in their very Hollywood are trying to show in their very basic way uh, the cultural differences. But I, didn't, I wasn't really convinced by that. Um, okay, we'll leave the coffee behind. Now, the trouble with this movie is I fell asleep. Um, and I've seen this movie, I've seen this movie a few times. I, I saw it at the cinema when it came out, and I kind of did enjoy it, apart from the, the bit towards the end where it does turn into um, the, the raptor scenes from Jurassic Park. And I thought I would enjoy it again this time. But I didn't. I It was a real chore to, to go through this and watch this. It, What's really interesting is I thought that the 1954 movie would be hard to watch, but that was actually quite easy to watch. This one was the most difficult of the three. I, I found it intensely trying. I didn't enjoy it at all. So that was Godzilla 1998. Bit of a thumbs down. Okay, Godzilla 2014. This is a very latest movie. And it is obviously a hom homage to the original. Uh, even the CGI tries to ape the original man in a Godzilla suit. Um, very similar to the way uh, they tried to give the impression of a hand operating a puppet in uh, operating... Uh, sorry. Um, do you remember Yoda in episodes 1, 2, and 3? So that's the new Star Wars movies, um, where they uh, CGI'd everything, basically. Uh, but they wanted to hark back to the old uh, Frank Oz Yoda. So they made it seem like there was a vague impression of a hand behind the mask uh, of, of Yoda's face. Well, you've got something similar in here, but they haven't... It really hasn't worked. Um... The, the monster isn't as bad as some people, including me, have made out from the trailers. Um, but it's not good. You know, he's big and lumbering, and it doesn't seem to make any sense. Um, so that's a monster. Not not too keen on the monster. The movie itself, big, loud, boomy, but nothing special. Um, unfortunately... Part of the problem with this movie is not really a bad movie altogether. But the problem is, when you compare it to the writing, especially the writing in the original, which is so much richer and cerebral um, than this generally, and it would be fair to say, brainless remake. Also, I, I found it 
unforgivable that uh, Brian Cranston is in this movie for all of five minutes. I mean, he's he, you know, he's probably on for longer than that, but screen time it seems like about five minutes. His forgettable screen son takes the lead for the rest of the movie. Now, seriously, why would you do that? Why, why on earth would you get, have a brilliant star actor, someone with serious acting chops like Brian Cranston, and then not even use him? <sighs> it sounds like I'm damning the whole movie, but I'm not. It. <laughs> Because in comparison to the 1998 movie, it is much better. But it is a pale, pale shadow of the original 1954 movie. So my advice to you is to rush out and buy Godzilla 1954 on DVD. I don't think there's any reason to buy it on Blu-ray, if it even exists on Blu-ray. Um... Because what what else could you add to such um, a budget movie? Um, so that's Godzilla. That was my monster <laughs> viewing um, session that I had this week. Um, I did actually watch them one after the other too, and, and that was pretty exhausting. But I'm doing it for the podcast. Okay. Ah, yes. Out at the moment. Um, the Giver. 2014. So this is another, and I've spelt dystopian wrong in my show notes. I've said dietopian. That's probably a word. Dietopian. Alright. Another dystopian young adult novel by Lois Lowry and it stars Jeff Bridges sporting yet another bizarre accent which I you know I can't work out why he's doing that um, but anyway let's talk about the movie so our young hero is a young man who lives in a closed-off high-tech community where most emotion is pharmaceutically quashed. Um, echoes of equilibrium here. Um, THX1138. Uh, the machine stops. Many things. So this young man starts his new career as the rememberer for the community and this is a bit like a telepathic archivist. Um, it's uh, and the title of the movie is the title of the job, the giver. Now the way he he learns his new job, he learns the ropes in his new job, is via this mind to mind link, a mind mind meld in fact, with the guy doing the job at present, with Jeff Bridges. So because this movie is out at the moment, I don't want to go into it too much. You've got the basic idea, you know, who's in it. Let's just jump to my view. Now, I don't think it's a bad film on the whole. Um, it was a lot better than 
Well, I'm trying to think of that other movie. Divergent. Now, I haven't seen Divergent, but I've seen the trailers. And I'm not too keen on watching it. I have a feeling it might be better than Divergent, but I can't tell for sure. Um, so the Maze Runner, if you can still catch it, watch it. You'll, oh, sorry, not the Maze Runner, that comes next. The Giver. If you can still catch it, you might want to watch this on a budget day at the cinema. Now, why did, why did the Maze Runner pop into my head? Well, it's because I'm looking forward to the Maze Runner. Um, which is coming soon, and stick around because later in the podcast we'll play a trailer for that. So that was Giver 2014. Average, not bad. Should please the young adult uh, novel uh, audience, who aren't actually all young adults. Some of them are adults, or younger. So next we have The Signal 2014. I think this was on limited release. Uh, I did manage to see it. Um, so in this sci-fi movie, some university nerds, uh, computer nerds in fact, try and track down a hacker who framed them, but in the process get way, way more than they bargained for. I think this should be out on DVD really soon, though. Um, it was out earlier on limited release uh, earlier this year. I saw it, but it's out on DVD soon, uh, if not already. It comes over as a kind of creepy, low-budget sci-fi. Um, like if there was a really good X-Files movie, um, then this would be it. Also, if you are a reader of 2000 AD's Future Shocks, um, you'll like this as well. It is very, very twisty-turny. There are a lot of twists, another sh a lot of shocks. Um, many modern sci-fi tropes are included in this movie, but it's not clumsy. Um, Actually, I've written down here excellent, so I must have liked it a lot. Oh, one other thing. Um, don't confuse this movie with the... I said even more brilliant, but as, as brilliant, uh, The Signal in 2007. Yeah, there was another movie in 2007 called The Signal. Um, which is a great spin on the zombie movie and is also worth watching. Um, so that's two great films called The Signal. Um, and it sounds such a ubiquitous term that there's probably about a dozen films called The Signal. But the two that I think are great are the one that I've just talked about in from 2014, Hackers, and the one about zombies in 2007. Both worth watch. Okay, next we have Sin City, A Dame to Kill For 2014, out now. Or maybe just about leaving the cinema now. I'm sure it's still out. Okay. Um, this is a semi-sequel to the cleverly filmed 
Sin City 2005, based on You Know Who's comic book. Unfortunately, this isn't near as good as the first movie. It sucks a bit. Um, and I don't think it's simply wangling the certification down to 15 which caused the damage. Um, it's star-studded, but a bit empty pastiche of different stories about the characters we know from the first neo-noir movie. I will say, though, that I actually, for a change was impressed by Josh Brolin's acting, and I'm not just saying that in an ironic manner. I, I thought he acted pretty well as uh, the character he played, Dwight McCarthy, um, who he took over from Clive Owen playing the character in the first movie. I think Clive Owen was in that movie for about five minutes from what I can remember. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he was in it longer than I can't remember that far back. Anyway, Josh Brolin does definitely put his own mark on the character and kind of makes up for the terrible Jonah Hex in 2009 and the even more terrible Old Boy in 2013. Eva Green is... Well, she's Eva Green. What can I say? It's almost watching it just for her. Um... And she is, literally, a dame to kill for indeed. Um, what else? Oh, two of the other characters I can talk about. Mickey Rourke um, is back playing Marv. And Jessica Alba is still Nancy the Stripper. Um, in this movie, Jessica Alba gets a bit more action. And she gets to kill a lot of people with Marv's help. Lady Gaga is in this movie too, um, along with a, a whole list of other stars. In fact, too, too numerous to mention. Seemed like everyone wanted to be in this movie and got into this movie. Um, but anyway, Lady Gaga was a waitress, but I did not even notice, and I had to look, the, look up the casting list at the end to find out uh, which waitress they were talking about. So that's Sin City, A Dame to Kill for 2014. Not that great. Okay, next we have The Equalizer 2014. Ah, and this is good. We're going to do something that we haven't done for a while. We are going to play a trailer. So, hang on for a second and I'll just play the trailer. I hope this works. Otherwise, I'll look really, really silly. Uh, roll the trailer. He got that fish yet? Hmm? Oh, yeah, yeah, he did. It's a happy ending. Not exactly. The old man met his greatest adversary just when he thought that part of his life was over. Why didn't he just let the fish go? Old man's got to be the old man. Fish has got to be the fish. Got to be who you are in this world, right? No matter what. Yo, Pop, bet you didn't have to push no dollies at your old job, did you? Guilty as charged. Can you do a refund for me when you're done? Open the register up right now. Move. Give me that ring. No, it was my mother. Please. It's okay, Jenny. 
What's he knowing about? It is about a guy who's a knight in shining armor, except he lives in a world where knights don't exist anymore. a trailer to the Equalizer. Uh, so yeah, McCall is back in this big screen reboot with Denzel Washington taking over from Edward Woodward, um, a guy whose name always cracks me up. Um, I'm sorry Edward, we, we do laugh about that in our house. Uh, Edward Woodward. Woodward. Edward Oh, God, it's like a tongue twister. I can't say it. Anyway, Denzel takes over from Edward as retired CIA spook, I believe is a CIA spook, who hires himself out as a one-man A-team. The original series was one of the few things both me and Dad could watch together Um Though saying that, I think we both love the Rockford Files too. Um, but yeah. Ah, came to the end of my notes. It is out today. Yeah. Um, yep, the Equalizer, it's out today. Uh, from the trailer, it looks like a fairly decent reboot. Um, I haven't really looked at uh, what the critics have said yet. I haven't seen the movie myself, so I can't really tell. Um, it's one of those characters where I can see Denzel playing. Um, the guy doesn't have to be too... McCall isn't young, so that's um, it's easy to have Denzel playing someone of that age rather than playing someone 50 years younger than himself which is getting a bit ridiculous now um, so anyway, yep, 
so that was the first trailer we had have today, uh, the Equalizer. And next we have the Maze Runner, which I am looking forward to, and I'll probably definitely, no, I'll definitely go to the cinema to watch this one. Uh, so just sit tight while I roll this trailer for the Maze Runner. So, The Maze Runner 2014 is a trailer you just heard, and that's based on James Dashner's uh, young adult novel, and it's to be released here on the 10th of October, uh, although it's already out in the US. Um, blimey, it, re it really does annoy me, these distributors. Um, but anyway, I'm definitely going to watch this. Anything with mazes... Um, interests me, so um, it looks good. Um, so that's it for movies this week. Actually, looking at the YouTube playlist um, as I ran those trailers for you, I noticed that um, there's a lot more we can talk about um, in future podcasts. I mean, uh, Kingsman, uh, The Secret Service, is out soon. Um, Horns. I don't know if that's out yet. That's that film with Daniel Radcliffe, uh, written by Stephen King's son. Um, that I think I talked about the the book in an earlier podcast. Um, and of course, Kingsman: Secret Service is a comic book. But um, we can talk about that in future podcasts. Uh, right. So we're done with uh, films and TV this week. Um, I'm not going to talk about any audio or books this week, or oh, I could just mention that I'm, <laughs> I've been listening to a lot more podcasts, um, and my 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 personal 
player which is not an iPod. Um, actually use a, a, a Sansa Clip um, Plus, uh, which costs about £30, and also plays FLAC files. So there you are, and it's really, really tiny. Um, but I've been listening to a lot of podcasts on it. Um, nothing particularly that I want to talk about now, though. Books, I've got a couple of uh, Doctor Who books. Um, one from Big Finish and one by Stephen Baxter, but again, I can talk about that in a future podcast. So the main thing I want to talk about this week uh, now is comics. I promised for some time that I would talk about Vanth Dreadstar, and this week I'm going to do that. Um, and we'll start with a comic called Metamorphosis Odyssey, from 1980. Now, I've looked forward to talking about this for a long, long time. Probably even before the first podcast, back in 2000, middle of 2012. I read snippets of it back in the 80s when I was buying Marvel's uh, epic illustrated comic um, but because I was never a regular buyer mainly because it was really really expensive and I was still on pocket money back then I think um, I never got into the full story until around 2011 in fact the collected um, comic series only came out in trade in 2000 so that's about 20 years after its initial publishing. Um, but the book we're going to talk about, Metamorphosis Odyssey, is both written and drawn by Jim Starling. So, a brief synopsis. Uh, we have an alien, almost god, uh, Akhnaton, of the Ozai-Rosian, Ozirosian race um, is putting together a team to cure the galaxy, our Milky Way, of conquest by the unbelievably evil and jaded Zygotians. Um, actually, the Zygotians, um, in retrospect, they, they seem a bit like us humans, although that's probably just my cynical point of view. Um, so, Akhenaten's putting this team together, and one of his first recruits he finds on an ice world, uh, where he finds a guy called Vanth. Uh, Vanth's a young man whose parents have been killed by ice bears, and whose life was only saved by a freak meeting with an alien sword, which uh, he melds with out in the uh, frozen waste. Um, the adventure then continues as they journey from world to world, uh, picking up recruits, um, and then finally carrying, uh, well, uh, finally accomplishing their mission, uh, which is to activate an ultimate weapon. I'm not sure how much I should spoil this for people. Um, I would strongly encourage you to Google Vanth Dreadstar. That's V-A-N-T-H Dreadstar. D-R-E-A-D-S-T-A. 
are. And try and try and get your hands on at least Metamorphosis Odyssey. Um, because it is a magnificent comic. Um, it is incredibly deep. Um, apparently, um, it, it, there's some kind of religious allegory going on in there, but to be honest, it, 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 that just flew right over my head. I didn't really notice any allegory. All I, all I thought was that this is, um, a, a really deep and affecting story, um, with an incredible and, and highly unusual ending. Um, so my view of the comic book, is, and part of the reason that I like it, is really that I like uh, the character of Vanth Dreadstar himself. Um, he, he's a very open, um, as well as badass character. <laughs> but he's, he's definitely one of the good guys. It's almost like a sort of cross between, if you were to cross Luke Skywalker, uh, you know, with Han Solo, you'd probably end up with Vanth Dreadstar. The other, yeah. So, and the first, this first comic, um, Metamorphosis Odyssey, um, is perhaps the best drawn um, of the series, in my view. Um, probably not in Jim Starlin's view, but in, in my view it is. Um, a lot of it, a lot of it, as I remember, is in black and white, which doesn't at all detract from it. Um, can't remember if it was coloured later on, but anyway, uh, that's what I remember. Um, and the story as a whole has a feeling of epicness, uh, like a mythological saga like the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, like the the uh, Odysseus's Odyssey, um, something on that scale. Um, I remember also mentioning ages and ages ago a, called, a guy, sorry, a guy called Jeff Buser, who made a heavy metal song based on E.C. Tubb. Um, Earl de Marist saga sci-fi novels um, well maybe someone should do the same for this um, book uh, because it is that epic I, I can't emphasize how how um, how good this story is finally the dread star series uh, with more fantasy elements than Star Wars or Dune, um, could really be ripe for turning into a movie franchise. Um, now I've thought of this, I, I, I thought of this for a long, long time, but um, in, in June uh, this year, IGN reported that that was indeed the case. Uh, the, the story had been optioned. I'm not sure which part of the story, uh, which part of Vanth Dreadstar's um, saga has been optioned for movie rights, but apparently it has been. Um, but I haven't he heard anything else since, so who knows. 
Um, if you want to find the link to that uh, article in IGN, just look in my show notes. So that's Vance Dreadstar. It's so weird. I, I I really feel that I could talk about this for hours, but um, it, it's difficult to to go too deep into a story when you don't want to spoil it for everyone else, and you want everyone else to read it. So, okay, I, I'll leave it for now. Uh, so that was Metamorphosis Odyssey from 1980 by Jim Starlin. Well, well worth a read. Next we have another comic book to talk about, and this is Spaceman from 2011. This is a Vertigo nine-shot written by Brian Azzarello and drawn by Eduardo Russo, uh, the team behind 100 Bullets from 1999, uh, which was an action comic book series, which really isn't my cup of tea. Um, but anyway, uh, back to Spaceman, and I've wanted to read this uh, for a long time, uh, ever since I saw the art uh, way back when. Um, there's something about the spaceman himself. He looks craggy. Uh, like Marv from the Sin City franchise, only um, less intimidating. Or less um, aggressive. Um, so, the story itself. This is sci-fi. Um, so we're in the future. And NASA have created um, genetically engineered ape-like pioneers uh, who are going to be sent to Mars. Now, they've created these um, large uh, humanoids, um, and it's not mentioned in the comic book, but apparently um, Brian Azzarello mentioned that he got the idea from the way that um, astronauts suffer bone density degradation in space, and in his mind he thought maybe a, a kind of Superman uh, with extremely dense bones and high strength uh, would be the ideal um, uh, biological template for the exploration of space. So that's the raison d'etre behind creating these um, beings. Um, including the spaceman himself. Um, and in due course, they're sent to um, Mars. And this is shown in the series of flashbacks. Um, on Mars, uh, the team, while um, setting things up for future exploration, um, they discover gold. Um, and then... Uh, they go all treasure of Sierra Madre on each other. Influenced heavily by a nasty, one of the nastier, more cynical team, uh, mercenary team members, a guy called Carter. Yes, that's no coincidence, Carter of Mars. Um, and... Maybe I should explain the treasure of Sierra Madre. What I'm basically saying is that they get greedy and start wanting to bump each other off. Or rather, Carter um, encourages them to do so. 
Um, I don't really want to talk about The Treasure of Sierra Madre. It's an old Humphrey Bogart movie. Look it up if you have to. Okay. So, the mission to Mars goes wrong. The program comes to a close, and they all go back to Earth. One of them, Orson, who is our hero, becomes a junker. That is a person who searches for, uh, searches uh, the water world-like um, world since something called the rise, uh, the, the rise of the sea levels. Everything's become flooded, um, and junkers search the seas uh, for stuff to sell, which is exactly like the um, uh, the main character from Waterworld. During his um, explorations, he stumbles uh, into a reality TV child star who's been kidnapped and rescues her. Uh, the rest of the novel plays out like a cross between The Truman Show and a police procedural with flashbacks to Orson's failed Mars mission. It's sort of uh, The Truman Show uh, meets Taken... Uh, meets Waterworld, meets Planet of the Apes. Sounds great, doesn't it? Though I thought it just had a little too much going on for its own good. Um, I think just the story of Orson and his brothers um, being created to explore Mars would have been enough for almost a series of trades, but they've they seem to have crammed a whole bunch of stuff into one, um, you know, one short series. Um, what else? Oh, the other thing that I, that was a bit jarring um, was the future slang that people speak makes it a difficult read. Um, but they speak a recognisable English. Uh, with a lot of um, uh, swearing. Uh, but that's not the problem. The problem is, I, sometimes I just can't make out what they're saying. And I can understand why he's done this, um, the, the, uh, the, why Brian Azzarello has done this, um, to give you a feeling of the future, but it's so dense that it is difficult to understand. And sometimes I'll just uh, flick through some of the pages ignoring uh, or skimming some of the text and just working out what's going on from the panels. Um, on a positive note, so I didn't hate it, on a positive note I liked the art um, and I liked the gentle giant protagonist very much, Orson. Um, Also, towards the end, there is uh, an Easter egg in the shape of a little alternative origin theory for Martian Manhunter. So look for that towards the end. <coughs> oh, sorry about that. I think my sinuses are dissolving. Oh, that's just great. Definitely time for more ginger ale, I think. So, 
Again, by the miracle of technology, I'm going to teleport myself to the kitchen to pour myself some more ginger ale, and I'll just be back in a second. Well, I'm back again. Can you believe it? I hit the wrong button on Audacity. Well, I hit the spacebar thinking I was going to uh, uh, pause uh, the podcast. <coughs> but what actually happened is it stopped it. So I had to, uh, I had to export the file right in the middle of a podcast and start re- recording uh, another segment that I'm late to have to join together again. How annoying is that? Oh, Oh, I really wish I had some kind of digital recorder and didn't have to rely on recording this from a desktop. Oh, woe is me. Okay, I'll stop feeling sorry for myself and carry on with a podcast. So we've just talked about Spaceman from 2011, and we're going on to uh, talk about um, another comic book that I'm currently reading called Terminal City, uh, complete to, from 2012. Uh, briefly, this is the noirish, well, neo-noir or future noir story of a guy with a mysterious briefcase. I've sort of read bits of this over the past couple of years, but luckily I found this complete compilation in the local library, so I can catch up with Dean Motter, Dean Motter's uh, Terminal City now. Uh, Dean Motter, if you remember, is the guy who wrote Mr. X, and I wrote a, a, a lengthy and somewhat um, accurate um, review on my blog about Mr. X, sorry. Um, but yeah, back to Terminal City. Uh, so it's more retro-futurism. Um, so the look of Terminal City is kind of like the 1940s, uh, mixed with maybe the 22nd or 3rd century of an alternate history. So we have flying cars, robots, and weird drugs, uh, but we still have gangsters, moles, uh, 40s hard-boiled Argo, uh, Argo, um, we have masked superheroes and adventurers, um, but, as far as I can see, and similarly to uh, Mr. X, the city itself is the star. Um, the art by Michael Lark, um, who we're talking about again. Uh, are we? Did we talk about him before? I'm sure we talked about him before today. No. Oh, well. I'm sure I mentioned that name before in the podcast. Maybe it's too much ginger ale. Um, yeah, uh, the art by Michael Lark is amazing. Um, both fantastic and run down at the same time. Uh, lovely stuff. Uh, despite the date of this Dark Horse edition, uh, 2012, that is. The original Vertigo two-part comic book came out way back in uh, 1996 to 97. Well, we're really going over some old comic books this this week. 
I think 1980 really takes a biscuit. <laughs> Cannot believe that that was 34 years ago. Can you? Metamorphosis obviously came out 34 years ago. Whoa. So, Terminal City Complete 2012. Yes, it is worth a read, and I'm reading it at the moment. Next we have... Oh, we've got a little bit on games. Um, and the biggest gaming news, of course, is that Mojang was sold. For $2.5 billion. Um, while it sounds like Marcus Notch person has finally thrown in the towel and let his baby go. Um, in my view, this is a good thing. Probably a good thing. Um, cashing out now. He could, of course, live the high life forever. Uh, though he posted um, somewhere. Was it on a blog? Um, maybe on the Mojang site. He posted that he'll still dabble in games design, which is what he likes doing, programming and games design. Um, but it just sounds like he didn't want to deal with a fame. And we've had an inkling of this before, uh, from that weird spat with the Ogcast. Um, anyway, I wish him well, and it will be interesting to see where he goes from here. Incidentally, Minecraft is great, but it's hardly um, original, or amazingly original, um, as many journos are, are making out. Uh, as Notch himself uh, said, he was inspired by Dwarf Fortress, and particularly, I think, Zaktronics in Finniminer, uh, which I have on my computer, and I've played about a bit, and it is a lot like Minecraft. Um, obviously not as sophisticated as, as Minecraft, but definitely it's got the look, that 8-bit that look, and the blocks. Um, so, it's not the most original game, though I'll, you know... I can understand why people like building things. To be honest, I prefer... I, I'm a real-world Lego person rather than a digital Lego person. Other games by Mojang, Scrolls, um, etc. have not had the impact of Minecraft. So all in all, clever of them for getting out now. Great for them, but not so sure about Microsoft, but who cares? I'm sure they can afford it. So, unbelievably, that, that is actually the end of the show. Can you believe it? Um, God, how, this must be one of the longest shows uh, yet. Um, certainly a long, uh, one of the longest solo shows. I uh, hope I didn't bore you too much. Uh, but I enjoyed talking about this stuff. Hope you did too. Um, oh, back to my birthday, I did get a present, um, I got a nice suede jacket, um, and I've got lots of cards, and I'm seriously thinking of uh, watching Tom Cruise's War of the Worlds now and having a drink of rum. I, I'm not sure, quite sure whether I should crack that bottle open yet or wait for a, wait for a better occasion. I would ask you what you think, but that would make no sense, because 
you wouldn't be able to reply. <laughs> um, the other, the only other nerdly thing I can think of coming up for me personally is that at the end of where are we now? We're in September, so October. At the beginning of at the end of October, the beginning of November, um, I believe that um, a friend is coming over, and we're going to have a pizza and Star Trek and beer night. So I'm looking forward to that. Next week, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, we should be talking about. Uh, William Hartnell's Doctor Who in the adventure entitled The Ark, so you can look forward to that. Now, I'm off to enjoy the rest of my evening. Hope you... Uh, well, <laughs> first I'm going to rapidly um, edit this podcast and get it out there, then I'll enjoy the rest of my ev evening. I um, hope you guys also enjoy your Friday. Uh, nice talking to you as always, and please get in touch if you have um, an idea for the show, uh, you want a guest, uh, you can contact me through the blog. Everything's available, every way of contact me, contacting me is available through roymatur.com, that's R-O-Y-M-A-T-H-U-R.com. Um, See you next week. Bye.